I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Green, a community organiser for Acorn the Union, a communications officer for Brighton and Hove Community Land Trust, and a communications officer for Seasalt Housing Cooperative. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here today. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is, um, how do you define community housing? H- how do we define it? What, what would you say is the definition of community housing? So community-led housing um, can broadly be defined as a development that is driven by, built for, and or owned by a local community. So when we're talking about community-led housing, we're talking about housing that offers something um, for people on a range of different incomes or for specific groups of people. So you might have community-led housing that works for people on low incomes, people who are part of the LGBT community, people who are part of um, ethnic minority communities. Um, community-led housing can work for people who want to rent or, or buy property, so that covers both of those sets of people. And um, there are different types of community-led housing projects that we can have. So we've got things like co-housing, um, cooperatives, community land trusts, and self-build, which I think we'll probably come on to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why do you think community housing is needed? What what, what do you think is the, the reasoning behind the need for it? Um, so I think in general, when we're talking about housing, the media sort of covers housing in a way that, that suggests that there's only sort of one way um, out of the housing crisis. So we always hear headlines about missed housing targets, dodgy landlords and, and poor housing conditions um, and a lot, of, a lot of noise about um, not being able to build enough houses. But I think community-led housing, with this big national discussion about housing, we need to we obviously need to build um, uh, housing and build a lot more housing. But we also need to build well, we need to build green, and we need to build affordable, and we need to get local communities on board. So community-led housing developments have quite a strong history of offering housing that's, that's definitely um, more affordable, more democratic, um, uh, more well-built using modern building methods and modern construction techniques and greener. So I think community-led housing provides uh, an opportunity um, to deliver homes in places um, and on sites where where traditional sort of commercial um, developments aren't viable mm-hmm. or where there's strong community um, uh, interest in developing a site uh, as opposed to a commercial site. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, how do you think people who might not know about um, community housing could get involved with it? Because, of course, the operative word is, is, is community, isn't it? How do these communities ensure that they can get together and, and, and get this housing um, done? How does What's the actual process in, in, in getting the community to, to work together to, uh, in order to get the houses built? Sure. So, there, as I said before, there are a variety of types of projects that community-led housing can take take hold under, and that really depends on what, what kind of developments the community are looking to build. Um, usually, communities will set up uh, either a, a cooperative or a community land trust um, type development, or another sort of third sector uh, organisation, which which drives, which, which helps the community access um, the infrastructure, so the campaigning tools, um, the the outreach um, and networks and the contacts and um, helps them bridge the gap between them and the local authority so um, political um, engagement and it also helps them access the capital 
to deliver these projects. What usually happens is people identify um, a need for community-led housing or housing development, and they will then decide what kind of um, projects they want. So I guess we can come on to talk about what kind of projects those might be. Um, so we could be looking at a, a co-housing scheme, which are like self-contained houses um, with shared facilities. So that would be um, like an affordable housing project where everyone owns their own flat. We could be talking about cooperatives where a house is built, um, self-built or renovated and managed by members of a group who have democratic control over the over the scheme. And they can either own that through shared ownership or an affordable rent proposal. And we're talking about um, um, community land trusts um, where... Well, community land trust is where land is kind of held by the community um, in perpetuity and stewarded in the long-term interests of the community. So, yeah, those are the kind of different schemes that communities can use to kind of kickstart projects. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can kind of get going on what kind of product you want to see, I guess. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned um, local authorities there, but I mean, how much enthusiasm do you see from local authorities, members of parliament to these kinds of schemes? Is, is, is there much enthusiasm from... Um, different MPs and different local authorities, or is it a bit more muted? I would say that community-led housing is definitely um, an underexplored and underinvested in sector at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, just to go to what to, to what the government have been doing first, the government launched a community-led housing fund in 2016, and I think they they roughly made available around 165 million pounds of funding for community-led housing projects across the country. And that funding was put into two stages. So the first stage of that funding uh, really allowed projects to get off the ground. So that would help them set up organizations, identify sites, and deal with all the, sort of the administrative costs like surveyors fees, legal fees, et cetera, et cetera. And then the second half of that funding was actually uh, capital funding to help them build the projects. So um, building the houses, accessing mortgages, that kind of stuff. Um, so central government did um, initially put in a lot of enthusiasm into community-led housing and made funding available. However, come, uh, I think it was 2022, they pulled that funding and what was left of it and stopped um, and pipelining any additional funding. So I think with the current um, government and the current economic climate, we've seen a kind of initial enthusiasm and more recently a kind of lack or, or withdrawal of that enthusiasm. Uh, locally, where I live in Brighton Hove, both of our MPs um, in Kemp Town, um, Lloyd Russell Moyle from the Labour Party and in, in Pavilion, uh, Caroline Lucas of the Green Party, have been supportive of community-led housing projects. Um, the City Council and um, Cross Party are also very enthusiastic about developing vacant sites for community-led housing. Um, so we've had a lot of um, good words uh, locally about community-led housing and the City Council have pledged uh, as part of their manifesto to deliver more community-led housing. So we're seeing uh, at a local level where I live, uh, particularly from from areas where Labour and, the, and perhaps the Greens, so more progressive parties are, are involved, you're seeing enthusiasm. But again, um, as I said, cross-party. So we have had um, some Conservatives in Brighton um, enthusiastic about community-led housing as well, which is helpful. Um, and it shows that there are definite benefits that are visible from community-led housing if everyone cross-party is getting on board. And then nationally, we've been, as part of the projects I've been involved in, um, setting up the first student housing co-op in the southeast, um, Seasalt Housing Co-op. Um, we've been contacted by various um, local authorities and MPs who are interested in what we're doing, 
I want to set up similar schemes where they are. So, for example, we were contacted by the housing um, cabinet member on Liverpool City Council, who was part of their, their um, they did a massive like land evaluation in Liverpool. And um, as part of that, they wanted to develop community-led housing projects. And a sort of subsection of that community-led housing focus would be a student housing co-op um, in Liverpool City. So we have attracted a lot of attention with what we're doing. And I think there is enthusiasm. And, and that reflects in the policy. So there's now a, a network of councils that run this thing called the Co-op Councils Innovation Network. So that is where um, um, local authorities can can access funding and support to develop cooperative projects. So that's not specific to community-led housing, but that just shows that um, projects that are, are running this cooperative model um, can um, are, are sort of lifting off the ground a bit more. Uh, recently yeah. mm, absolutely uh, just to return to the um you mentioned the um funding that was set aside by the government mm-hmm. in in 2016 yeah. how much of that do you think before the the um the plug was pulled was actually used and how effectively advertised do you think the scheme was um i think the scheme was um definitely effectively advertised to people in the sector so when i was involved in community housing obviously people involved in and brighton hope community land trust where i live or people trying to set up cooperatives are always on the lookout for government support and always looking out for ways they can access additional funding through grants or, or community shares or whatever that may be. So I definitely think um, it was easy for us to find out about it, but I don't think it was very easy for people who perhaps didn't know so much about community-led housing to to find out that this was available and that they were able to build these community-led schemes in their, in their area. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think the government could have gone on a, a bigger drive to promote these community projects and the kind of consensus build um, more community engagement in development nationwide, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of the animosity towards new developments comes from a lack of community involvement, a lack of community consensus on what's being built and where. So in that regard, I think this this fund could have been could have been better advertised. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I do believe that most, almost all of the fund was actually used. Um, we've got about sixty to sixty five thousand pounds mm-hmm. towards CSO Housing Co-op which um, was, was incredibly um, useful and helped kickstart our whole project. So um, I think they, they I'm not sure exactly on the figures of how much was used, but I think almost all of it was was, was used, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned um, CESOL there and uh, housing uh, cooperative, student housing cooperatives. How important do you think it is that um, students, particularly you know, when you're going off to um, university, mm-hmm. starting to rent for the first time, have that kind of support from student cooperatives and are able to go to them if they're in need. How important do you think that is? Yeah, I, th- I think it's very important, actually. I think it's a very innovative and new way of living for students. Currently, I think there are two ways, really, that most people live at university, and that is either in, in student halls and, and university-managed accommodation or in the private rental sector. Mm-hmm. And then I guess there are a few um, and smaller number of people who live at home whilst they're at university. Um, who either live in the city where they study or, or studying for an online degree. Um, but the student housing co-op really offers a completely different way of living to the traditional university style. So in this way, you're, you as a student, so a cooperative is, is managed by its residents. So the people that live in the house collectively manage and make the decisions about how the house is run. So you don't have a landlord and any decisions that a landlord might normally make are made by these members as a collective group. So they hold general meetings every, um, maybe every week or every two weeks or once a month where they will come together, they will assign roles to each other and then 
they will make these decisions. Mm-hmm. So students living in a cooperative um, can, in a way, um, it helps that people build um, their independence. Mm-hmm. It helps people learn new skills. So, for example, at Seasol, um, we've had a lot of interior design work going on, people painting the walls, people putting up shelves. So students living in the co-op are able to learn these kind of like these, like DOI skills, um, able to learn how to manage house finances. So someone, so everyone at Seasol is given a, a role within the co-op. So you have um, a chair, a treasurer, a, a rent officer. So for example, the treasurer is able to learn skills around finance, managing managing the books, um, collecting rent and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, it enables students to learn new skills. It gives them a collective voice in their living situation. And of course, housing co-ops are obviously built to high standards. So CESOL is um, energy efficient, it's green. So they get good quality accommodation and it's also affordable. So we try and set rents uh, close to local market rate. Mm-hmm. And then the excess rents that are generated are reinvested back into the project. Um, and as part of their rent uh, collection, uh, the students at the house get a yearly budget. So I think they get £2,000 a year, mm-hmm. which they can spend collectively. So then again, that gives students the ability to make their own decisions and spend that money in the way that they, they want to spend it, rather than having to rely on the landlord or a university housing provider to make those decisions for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, how receptive have um, universities, do you think, been to student housing cooperatives and how much support have they given to them? Um, I don't think there's been that much support given um, on a national scale. Mm-hmm. So at CESOL, we were lucky that we engaged with the university early on through the Students' Union, and they gave us a grant fund of £10,000 to help us uh, start our project. Other than that, I don't think I know of almost any universities nationwide that have really helped kickstart um, any of these projects. Mm-hmm. So the largest student housing co-op in the UK is... Edinburgh Student Housing Co-op, and they 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 actually own old well they actually manage old university halls in Edinburgh, so they have over a hundred rooms um, that they can provide to people. But I think they do that through a housing association that bought the halls off the university rather than from the university directly. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of actual support by universities, I don't think other than what we've done, I can't I can't think of any projects for student housing co-ops that have been but have been supported by the higher education sector so far. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's solely a case of the, the universities making money from student housing and so aren't receptive <laughs> to something like this? Or do you think that it's simply that universities aren't aware of schemes like this and so don't know how to necessarily encourage them? I think it's a bit of both um, in a way. I think first and foremost, there aren't many student housing co-ops in the UK. So not every university town or city has a a student housing co-op available or, or a group willing to uh, and ready to set one up. Um, so in that regard, you know, where there isn't one, there's not going to be a university that's that engaged. Um, so I think we first need to think about how we how we market student housing co-ops and perhaps we need to do more outreach in students' unions and to university higher, higher, hierarchies um, across the country to kind of promote the benefits of having a student housing co-op in, 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 your, in your setup. Yeah, and then secondly, as you say, universities are providing... Um, a lot of student housing and it's obviously these days quite expensive so I know at the University of Sussex for example um, there was a lot of contention between the students and the university around the gentrification of what they saw the gentrification of some of their accommodation mm-hmm. so the university um, what was known as East Slope at the University of Sussex the old East Slope and the old Park Village accommodation 
um, was knocked down and replaced by new um, expensive accommodation. So the cheapest accommodation on campus then suddenly became the most expensive. So people who needed affordable accommodation couldn't get it. And I think there is definitely a, a tendency of university hierarchy because universities aren't, aren't funded by um, central government so much mm-hmm. anymore. And a lot of universities are are looking for new ways for funding. They're obviously going to be more receptive to housing schemes that give them um, long-term uh, financial stability rather than trying to channel money into projects that don't perhaps give them that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just thinking about cooperatives more widely. Mm-hmm. Um, cooperatives are obviously something that have been around for a very long time, have a story history. Do you yeah. think that there has been a revival in appreciation of the cooperative and the cooperative model in the past few years as compared to, say, in the 1980s and the 1990s, where it was seen as not only very old-fashioned, but perhaps a um, a bit, you know, um, not necessarily working in the best way, perhaps unprofitable, all, all, all these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Do you think that we've seen a turnabout and people are becoming much more in favour of cooperative models, not just in terms of um, student housing co-ops, but also in terms of um, cooperatives at stores, cooperative banks, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I think the, the 1980s and the 1990s were characterised by the rise of, of Thatcher and then New Labour, both of whom I think weren't that uh, conducive towards cooperative forms mm-hmm. of development. Um, I definitely think there is a tendency for a more neoliberal approach um, with those two governments, which perhaps didn't allow for the growth of community schemes and cooperatives. But coming towards sort of the mid the mid two thousands and then the tw- the early sort of twenty tens, I think after the global financial crash um, and with the economic conditions as they are, a lot of people were looking for alternatives to the status quo and alternative economics. Um, and I think largely in the sort of the last twenty years, community land trusts and cooperatives have kind of grown out of the US mostly. Mm-hmm. So we've seen projects like in Jackson, Mississippi, where the locals are trying to build a whole cooperative network to to resist um, corporate developments. Um, again, there's the lar- one of the largest cooperatives in Europe is the Mondragon Cooperative in Spain. Um, so yeah, people are looking for something different. And I think um, uh, as people turn to uh, things like community wealth building and, and kind of like, um, yeah, looking for local authorities to used their money responsibly and used their money uh, in a more progressive procurement kind of fashion where they where they support local businesses and support local uh, um, needs more. Cooperatives definitely have a role to play play in that. And I think that the growth of those kind of ideals has led to a growth in, in cooperatives yeah. uh, more widely. How much do you think that the growth of cooperatives, the growth of interest in community land trusts, community housing is linked to a desire for greater devolution, a desire for local communities and, and, and more uh, areas that have perhaps not seen as much attention paid to them by national government want to try and get that uh, kind of power and that kind of like local decision-making back to them because they know that they will be able to do things that will be more beneficial to their community rather than necessarily leaving up to Member of Parliament, Westminster government, who might not necessarily help them in the way that they need to with support, infrastructure, that kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. So I think the two the two biggest driving forces at the moment are the market and the state in terms of their the way things are built in in this country. And I think people who are in sort of left behind areas or even people in 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 invested areas are looking for a way that they can take 
more control over over decision making and kind of make their own their own their own their own projects. Um, I definitely think economic devolution is becoming more and more popular amongst people in this in in the UK. Um, they're people are looking for a way that um, well, in terms of community-led housing projects, we're looking for a way that the land can be more easily accessed and acquired by local people uh, with local interests. And they want to 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 find a way that they can ensure the benefits are shared equally among among local people, among members, and that profits are reinvested back into local community and not passed on to people like shareholders and external benefactors. Um, a lot of people in 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 areas of the north or in coastal communities have seen a lot of a lot of the wealth and a lot of the the traditional um, opportunities in their in their towns and cities has been um, has been lost. Um, over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of areas are now much more deprived than they used to be. And I think recently um, I saw a good um, graph in the Financial Times that was explaining how the GDP output of the UK is very London-centric. Mm-hmm. And without London, the UK would be much poorer than most uh, major European economies. And much poorer. most regions in the UK are much poorer in terms of GDP output than the poorest state um, in the US, which is, I think, Mississippi. So in that way, I think these people are kind of looking for a way to kind of draw on the resources of that very London-centric economy and devolve economic power out to their local community. Um, so they want to, call it, yeah, so in this way, they want to promote uh, kind of um, economic devolution, um, economic resilience, and a kind of community wealth-building approach where profits are kind of reinvested in, in local communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and just turning back to um, the the question of housing, I, I know as you mm-hmm. um, mentioned um, that uh, Seasalt is obviously um, very keen on ensuring that any housing built is environmentally efficient, that it mm-hmm. doesn't have a, a, a massive impact on the environment. How important do you think it is that environmental standards in housing are kept up? And what do you think is the balance that can be struck between needing to build more housing and ensuring that there is a sustainable growth in wildlife, in the environment, and reaching the net zero target. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think as part of the Community Housing Fund that the government did, one of their stipulations was that housing projects should be built with modern building standards mm-hmm. and sustainable building efforts. So I've been involved in a project in Brighton Hove, which is called Bunker Housing Co-op. And the theme of their project was to build a kind of cabin in the woods style in the middle of a city using these kind of Scandinavian um, building standards to what was called passive house. So essentially almost carbon neutral. So I would encourage anyone to have a look at, you know, Bunker Housing Co-op and you can see for yourself, like they do open days as well, if you're ever around in Brighton Hyde uh, sometimes. But essentially their house is built with um, using a material called cross-laminated timber, which is both a really good insulator, but also really breathable in the summer. So, um, and they've also got things like, um, they've worked with, um, Brighton Hove Energy Services Cooperative to kind of use a, an innovative lease system to get solar panels on the roof. They use, um, ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps to heat their house. So they were telling me that in the winter, they don't even need to put the heating on because their house is that energy efficient. And they built this project from the Brownfield site in the middle of a, a housing estate in the Elm Grove area. Mm-hmm. So this is an area that used to be fenced off by the local authority. And it used to be kind of a fly tipping site. So you can imagine it was very sort of unsightly and um, perhaps disused area. And so I think when we're looking at housing projects and we're looking at building, there is definitely a need to identify 
areas like brownfield sites where we can build modern building standards, modern construction methods. Um, Bunker was built on a fairly affordable um, um, budget and they self-built it themselves. So I definitely think um, we can build green, we can build sensibly, we can build smart. Um, and I think most of all, it's it's about consensus building. So we need to start the discussions now between all the stakeholders involved. So local communities, um, charities, wildlife trusts, um, environmental groups, and and people who are going to be building these houses need to get around the table and kind of forge a consensus path forward. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I think we're kind of playing everyone off one another. People are saying, well, we need to build more houses. We'll have to sacrifice the environment. And environmental groups are saying, well, in that case, we'll have to stop all housing developments to kind of protect the environment. And I think there is a way forward where we can kind of find the middle ground where we protect the environment and we promote um, um, good and environmental building standards, but also we build as much as possible, which is which is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How important do you think it is to have flexibility over the types of houses that are built? So, for example, you, you mentioned um, the Bug Hill development there, but mm-hmm. um, other you know examples like tiny houses, they're very popular um, in the United States at the yeah. moment. Some have been brought over into um, the UK as well different types of um, multi-storey uh, accommodation, not necessarily the kind of blocks of flats that were built in the 1960s or 70s, yeah. but much more environmentally uh, friendly uh, multi-storey flat accommodation. Do you think it's important that we focus on flexibility in terms of the types of housing that we're building as much as ensuring that we make, you know, we build as much houses as possible? Yeah, 100%, because I think every site you find will be different and every site you find will have different um, opportunities available. Um, when we were looking at um, properties for seaside housing co-op, we first started looking at places like old ho- disused hotels, mm-hmm. disused B&B. And I think community housing groups um, are quite innovative in the way they can access sites that you probably wouldn't traditionally think of as as, as areas where housing might be built. Um, a lot of um, local authorities, however, are quite um, reluctant to to fund products like that because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're concerned about things like planning gain. Where people gain, uh, where where if you turn commercial into to property overnight, you get a big windfall in terms of its value. There are definite definite um, issues in terms of trying to identify novel ways of building and novel site access, mm-hmm. and those issues need to be ironed out first before we decide. You know, before we start this opening up um, complete um, um, flexibility. But we have, yeah. But as you say, it's definitely good to have different flexible building styles. And, and and community projects in particular tend to be much more flexible and much more innovative in the way that they build than traditional projects. So using modern building methods and using um, innovative uh, types of housing is definitely, yeah, the way forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, we're coming towards the end uh, of the podcast, Tom. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me. But I do have one final question for you. What do you think is the biggest concern that you have in terms of the future of housing in Britain, what, what what do you think is the biggest risk or biggest danger that we have for the future of housing in the UK? I think the the biggest concern is that we continue on the same path that we've been going on, with this emphasis on individualisation and, and these large scale private developments that don't serve the interests of the local community and aren't affordable. And I think if we carry on down that path, we'll end up in a situation where there no one can uh, ever have the chance to own their own home. People don't have a sense of community. People don't have these kind of innovative and modern building uh, houses to, to live in. 
So yeah, I think continuing down the same trajectory is my biggest concern. Um, and I think in terms of um, going forward, I think it we need we need to build um, um, quality green housing that is is in the interests of local communities. Mm, absolutely, uh, completely agree. Well, thank you once again uh, for coming on the podcast, Tom. If people want to find out uh, more about you, where should they go to to find out more about you? Um, you can check out um, seesawhousingcoop.com. You can go on um, Brighton Hope Community Lab Trust, and you can also um, follow me on Twitter as well, um, Tom Green on Twitter. So. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast. Like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the Debated Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.